is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. We've told the story of both the 1980 U.S. Olympics Miracle on Ice story and the captain of that team's story, Mike Ruzioni. He shared his story with us, too. Here's Greg Hengel with an alternative look at that miraculous tale. In his book, Win at Losing, How Our Biggest Setbacks Can Lead to Our Greatest Gains, Sam Wyman explores how failure can often be beneficial. Among the people he profiles is Ralph Cox, a former college hockey star who was squeezed out of arguably the greatest moment in sports history. What you might know about Ralph comes from the 2004 Disney movie, Miracle, which is the true story of the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team that upset the powerful Soviets en route to the gold medal at Lake Placid. One of the movie's bit characters is a very likable forward with a thick Boston accent. Ralph Cox had shaggy hair and a handlebar mustache, and in college hockey, he was a prolific goal scorer. The problem is, Cox also suffered an ankle injury in the run-up to the games, and it continued to nag him as the Americans were paring down their roster for Lake Placid. In one of the movie's most emotional scenes, U.S. coach Herb Brooks calls Cox into his office to relay the news that he had to make one more cut. And Cox was it. We'd like to thank Winify, the definitive YouTube channel for first-person accounts for the footage. Now, here's Ralph Cox picking up the story following the last day of training camp in Minneapolis, Minnesota. People in Minneapolis were going to give us a going-away banquet for, you know, living there. We all lived in Minneapolis, and that's where we trained. And I get to the hotel where the banquet hall is, and Herb wants to see me, and someone says he's downstairs in a small conference room, a small banquet hall. And as I'm walking down the stairs, I'm realizing that this is probably the moment. Like, I, I, I knew Herb. Even though no one had said it, I really thought I was going to be on the team. I mean, I really thought I would be on the team and go to Lake Placid. Um, I sensed that he was calling me there to tell me otherwise. Um, so, you know, you, you know I tell you, I, I stayed outside the room for about, uh, the doors closed for a good five minutes, just trying to catch my breath, get my composure, because it was a very emotional moment. It was very, very hard to think about that possibility. Um, and so your emotions are running high, and I opened the door. Finally, I just said to myself, you know, have some courage, take a breath, go in there and, and see what's going on. And when I walked in, Herb was pacing back and forth in the room. When he saw me come in, he just looked at me and he welled up, which I'd never seen that happen. I mean, Herb was a very powerful guy. And it took him a few minutes to be able to catch his breath or get his composure. And he tried to talk, and again, he was a little emotional. And at that moment, for some reason, I was extremely uh, calm and in control. And I looked at him and I said, you know, hey, it's... It, it's going to be all right. And he sort of smiled at me a little bit, and he said, you know, I, uh, I've really enjoyed having you on the team. You've been great to have around, your enthusiasm, your passion for the game. I think you're one of the best goal scorers I've, I've ever seen or coached. He said, I think your injury has really slowed you down. It's only been five months. We're going to be playing on a big ice surface, um, and I, I have to make one of the toughest, if not the toughest, coaching decision I've ever had to make, Ralph, and I'm not going to be able to take you. And again, he, 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 he welled up and stood up and walked around the room a little bit. And, um, 
you know, he, he sat back down again, and we, we talked a little bit about uh, um, about the Olympics. I told him it was always a dream that I had to actually go there. I said, I really have a, uh, I don't know where this came from, but I said, I really have a funny feeling about this team, that you're going to have a real shot at a medal. And he said, and I said, I think you can really win the gold medal. And he started laughing, and he said, geez, I'll, I'll be happy if we just have a good showing. There's a lot of people... I'm not sure about that. He said, it's nice to see you feel like that, you know. He said, if I can ever do anything for you ever in your career, he said, it'd be a pleasure to, to be able to do that. And what I, what I didn't know at that time, and I didn't know for almost 10 years, um, but it made sense after, after the 10 years, because it was an article in Sports Illustrated, and uh, the, uh, the author of the article asked Herb, you know, at that moment, when the final seconds ticked down and you knew you were going to win the gold medal, what were you thinking about? And he said, I was thinking about Ralph Cox. And I'm reading the article and I'm thinking, that's unusual. And uh, then I went on to talk about Herb being the last cut in the 1960 Olympics, right before the Olympics. And just the ironic moment that, you know, he, when he was probably letting me go, he was thinking of himself. I knew it was hard for him, and it was obviously a crushing moment for me uh, as an athlete. And I remember when I left there, uh, I, I, you know, I thought my life was over. This was going to be it. You know, it would never be the same, and 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 and, and my life would be very different, which it which it has been. Um, and it took a few years to uh, sort of adjust who you are in the world because you think you know at that point as an athlete you think of yourself as a hockey player but it uh, it really f forced me and helped me think about uh, myself and the world around me in a much I think a much healthier way and in a, in a good way and and I went on I had a great career playing in, in Europe and you know a lot of good moments in hockey and a lot of good moments working with the Penguins with Herb and people used to tell me don't you hate Herb Brooks not for a second. I enjoyed him as a coach. He was a phenomenal hockey coach, you know, and I don't think people need me to say that, but he was the best bench coach that I think most of us on that team ever had. And, um, you know, it wasn't easy, I think, melding that team together. We were all young and enthusiastic guys, and all of us were the captains of our team. We all had big egos, and we all wanted to play, and we thought we should be playing all the time, killing penalties on the power play. and. You know, the guys from the East, really, that's true. And the guys from the West, they had this culture clash. And he had a way of bringing us together. And he certainly was as good as coach as I've ever played for. Ralph Cox was the ECAC Player of the Year in 1979. And he played professionally in Europe before joining the Pittsburgh Penguins as a scout, winning two Stanley Cups. He currently has a successful real estate business and still gets together with the players from the 1980 team. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. The story of Ralph Cox. Do you hate Herb Brooks? What a silly question. And what a great answer. Ralph Cox's story, a story of failure, of rejection, and ultimately triumph here on Our American Stories.
we continue with Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from all over this great country. And we've been spending some time in Austin, Texas, at a place called Community First Village, a 51-acre master-planned community that provides affordable, permanent housing and a loving community for men and women who've spent years, often decades, surviving on the streets of Austin. It's easy to appreciate the world-class architecture in this village, but it's the people who really make it transformative. Larry Crawford is the guy who fixes anything that breaks in the community, from air conditioners to trucks. And like many Americans whose work is so much more than a day job, Larry works all hours of the day, especially with what he calls his mobile homeless gig, where he goes out to meet folks wherever they are and fix their vehicles so they can keep living in them. Here's Larry on how all of that got started. I've always been a bit of a gearhead. I mean, I had hot rods when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. I built my first car that I legally drove on the street uh, when I had a driver's license, a handmade car. And I like the four-wheelers and the Jeeps and stuff and restored a few old vehicles and, you know, swapped a few motors and just love working on cars and stuff. And then when I come to Austin and I started working at the village, I quickly came to believe that what we do here at the village is the gold standard for coming up with a way to uh, mitigate uh, people living on the streets. And even though I do believe completely that this is the gold standard, there's a lot of demographics, there's a lot of people that we are not reaching. So five years ago, I met this couple they were on the side of a freeway uh, on, in South Austin, broke down in an old raggedy motor home. And I just stopped and asked them if I could help. And, uh, you know, the lady, uh, she was kind of scared of me and she stayed kind of in the back of the motor home. And the guy was an older fella. And um, he, uh, he's, like, he's like, man, I, the thing just won't start. He said, I think I'm out of gas. And so, and I'm like, well, let me look. I turned the key and it's sitting on empty. I'm like, well, I'm like, I got a gas can in the back of my truck. I said, there's a store about two miles up. I'll go get some gas. I'll come right back. So I, I put some gas in the guy's car and I had like a, a two gallon can and a five gallon can. And so I filled them both up. And, um, and it, of course the thing started right up and they were thrilled and relieved. And, and, uh, he said, Hey, let me pull right up here. He said, just follow me. He said, I don't, I want to, I want to meet you, you know. So we're on the side of the freeway, and there's a lot of traffic, and it was it was dicey just putting the gas in there. I was like, I hope I don't get squished by one of these trucks. And uh, so we go up, and he pulls into a little open area off the feeder road, and and we shook hands, and he thanked me, and and uh, and we parted ways. And we'll, but I gave him my phone number, uh, although he didn't have a phone, he still doesn't have a phone. And um, that's how, I call it the mobile homeless gig. And uh, so that's how it started. And, um, and I've done probably about 90 cars in the last five years. I don't say cars, vehicles. Sometimes it's a school bus, sometimes it's a Honda little four-door car, and sometimes it's a van, sometimes it's a, an old motor home. And, uh, but I only fix things for people that live in their vehicles. So if your car breaks down, don't call me because um, I'm busy. Um, 
And so I, I do all the parts and I do all the labor for free, so I don't charge anybody for anything. And the people that I've done stuff for have been musicians, they've been artists, they've been elderly, they've been young, they've been brilliant and smart, and uh, some of them are stupid as a rock. And I'm just like the whole, you know, spectrum of what people could be, and I never, I never ask them what got them there. I never judge them on whether, you know, their vehicle smells like marijuana or their vehicle smells like some sort of a cheap whiskey or wine or some other yucky stuff. Uh, I just fix their car and move on. And um, I had a, one pretty recent that that happened was. Um, I got a call from this lady, and she had a little small car, and uh, the old car, maybe 20, 25-year-old car. She was on the side of 35. She was northbound, uh, just coming out of downtown Austin. Car broke down on the side of the road. She had no money, very little gas, and the cops were behind her, and they were fixing to have her towed. And she contacted this church in South Austin. It's not a church I go to, but anyhow, so she called this church to ask if there was anybody could help and so they gave her my number she called me and she was crying and you know she's worried she's going to get a ticket because she didn't have any insurance and registration was expired and um and I, she told me where she's at and i'm like i'll be there in a few minutes and it was at the end of the day it was like five o'clock at night and i was already through working anyway so i drive over there and of course the cop was behind her and i pull in front of her car and and this time she's really crying hard because the cop had already called a tow truck. So I went back and uh, asked the cop if he had given me an opportunity to take care of it and he asked me who I was. And, uh, and he had heard of me, he didn't know me, but he had heard of me from some other cops or something. And uh, he said, I'll call off the tow truck and I'll give you an opportunity. And so I knew the immediate threat was gone. So I went over and started looking at the car and, and it didn't take me five minutes to figure out I didn't have the part nor the tools to complete the job. So I called a tow truck, a company here in Austin that I'd used several times before. And, and uh, they had a truck that was only like two exits away. And so they just came right away and they towed the car. He asked me where I wanted it. I just take it to O'Reilly's. It's an auto parts store, the next exit. So we went up there and, and uh, I bought the part. It cost me $9 for the part to fix this lady's car. And I, I didn't have all the tools I needed, but the guy in the auto parts store, he was real cool. He's like, just buy everything you need to fix the car. And when you're through fixing them, bring them all back in. I'll give you your money back. And he said, we kind of do this tool rental thing here. You just pay for it and bring it back and I'll give you your money back. I'm like, okay, fine. So it literally cost me nine bucks. And, you know, in total, maybe a couple of hours. And, um, you know, that lady's level of stress was just off the charts because she thought her car was going to get towed and she knew if she got it towed, she would lose it forever. And, you know, I asked myself if I were going to be homeless, if I had a choice between sleeping in my van or my car or sleeping in an alley or under a bridge, which would I prefer? Well, obviously you'd rather sleep in your car or in your van because at least you have a door you can lock and keep some of your stuff from getting ripped off or rained on or whatever. And so, yeah, that's how that kind of started. And some weeks I'll do one or two, some weeks I'll do eight or nine. And uh, so that's kind of how that goes, or that got started.
And since Larry's been at this for a while and word has gotten around, others have been inspired to help however they can. The tow truck driver that showed up on that, that little car uh, is a big old Hispanic fella. He uh, kind of looked like a, he was like a linebacker from a football team from like 20 years ago. He was an older guy. And uh, anyhow, he had heard about, you know, me fixing people's cars and, and, uh, and he, uh, you know, when we first got there, he just went straight to work, hooking up winches and things to, you know, be able to pull the car up onto the back of the flatbed truck he had. So we get to the auto parts store and he's unloading. And then we finally got to talk because he really didn't talk much because he was trying to get us all off the side of the freeway. So we get there and, and I thanked him and I went to pay him. He's like, no, you don't have to pay me. And I'm like, oh, but no, I'm gonna pay you. He said, no, he said, I've, I've been hearing about you. He said, I'm gonna do this tow for free. And, uh, and I, you know, I thanked him and, and he, he gave me his, you know, company card and wrote his cell phone number on the back. And, and he said, well, my boss knows I'm towing this for free. He said, if you ever call, and I'm on shift, he said, I'll tow it for free as long as it's not too far and doesn't take too much diesel. And uh, so I was really grateful that, you know, that this complete stranger that I never met this said, hey, I'm gonna give you a free tow. And so, like I said, I took care of that lady's entire stressful situation for like nine bucks. And, you know, nine bucks is not a whole lot of money to me, but to that lady, that $9 was everything. And you've been listening to Larry Crawford. And by the way, to learn more about Community First Village, go to www.mlf.org. That's MLF for Mobile Loaves and Fishes. That's MLF.org. And by the way, the consequence of his generosity, of course, was the imitative power of his story. People see the story, they see the person doing something beautiful, and they want to do it too. And this country is filled with random acts of generosity and kindness. If you've got a story like it or a person like it in your community, and I know you do, send them and their stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Larry Crawford's story here on Our American Stories. we continue here with our American stories and we tell policy stories periodically when they hit the pavement so to speak that is when they affect your lives and we're not a partisan show we don't get into Republican and Democrat stuff we know that's why you like us and it's why we like doing this actually getting away from all that nonsense law enforcement is supposed to be about protecting the public by discouraging through monetary fines dangerous driving and other hazardous personal conduct or property conditions. But in practice, local governments may also, or instead, use their law enforcement powers to raise revenue. And I know a lot of you know what I'm talking about, especially the raise, the rising cost of some of these tickets. This is known in the business as taxation by citation. 
It is not a new phenomenon, but only in the past few years has it become an object of national concern. Despite the fresh spotlight, little is known about cities that engage in taxation by citation beyond a few particular egregious examples. To gain a better understanding of taxation by citation, we wanted someone who spends his days fighting these cases across our country to explain this public, how should I put it best, but perversion. Here he is sharing a couple of his case studies with us. My name is Joshua House, and I'm an attorney with the Institute for Justice. The Institute for Justice is a public interest uh, nonprofit law firm, and we represent clients across the country in lawsuits against the government when the government violates their property rights. And one of the ways in which the government has violated property rights is by using local code enforcement and municipal court mechanisms to raise revenue rather than to protect the public. We call this taxation by citation, and we see it in Doraville, Georgia, one of the cities where we represent four plaintiffs uh, in a lawsuit. In Doraville, the city was ticketing people for small-time violations like cracked driveways and tall weeds uh, or having improperly stacked wood. And uh, when we started looking into the case, we realized that they were doing this because using some of their recent audits, about 24% of the town's revenue came from fines and fees that were generated by these tickets. Doraville is a small town on the outskirts of Atlanta. It sits right on the perimeter, which is Atlanta's beltway. And the city is heavily reliant on these fines and fees. In fact, this, the city actually said in a newsletter to residents that it substantially relies on this revenue for about three and a half million dollars a year. So when we started looking into this, uh, we were in touch with, uh, at first, just uh, one uh, person there who was Hilda Brucker. Now, she had gotten a ticket for having a cracked driveway and actually was, was held into court, a criminal court, and given a criminal violation for the condition of her driveway. She was eventually sentenced to six months of probation, where she had to adhere to a bunch of probation conditions like abstaining from alcohol and being subject to searches. And she also had to pay a $100 fine. In fact, had she not paid that all at once, she would have had to continue making payments to a private probation company. So this is a full-on criminal proceeding against Hilda because of the condition of her driveway. Hilda introduced us to her neighbor, Jeff Thornton, who uh, was ticketed for something as small as a stack of wood in his backyard. The stack of wood was what he used for woodworking, but because it was improperly stacked, he uh, received a, a series of tickets. And in fact, uh, the, the starting fine for his tickets was $1,000. That was curved back to about 300 once he explained he couldn't afford the fine and actually once it was clear he couldn't even pay the 300 they just decided to not ask for the money altogether uh, and again the, the whole proceeding seemed to be with the aim of just getting money out of jeff it didn't actually seem to have anything to do with the health and safety of the community we also represent two other clients who received just extremely small-time traffic violations. One was changing lanes too late before an intersection, and, and another had to do with passing without a turn signal. You know, these are violations that, you know, maybe against the letter of the law, but they're extremely small-time violations, and they're enforced here because the city needs the revenue from their enforcement. And, you know... It, 
it's it's one of those things where the it's no accident that things like speed traps or other kind of uh, local enforcement mechanisms exist in a town like this where it needs the revenue from the enforcement of its code. Now, the, the Doraville is not under the radar in this regard. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution had done a series of reports on Doraville being a speed trap uh, as, as recently as 2014. And uh, in a recent U.S. Commission on Civil Rights uh, report, Doraville was in the top 10 nationwide of cities that receive revenue from code enforcement. We filed a lawsuit against the city of Doraville, arguing that using code enforcement and the municipal court in order to raise revenue violated the 14th Amendment because it violates due process. Americans have a due process right to not be hailed into a court where the judge and prosecutor have a financial interest in convicting them. When you go into court, the judge should give you a fair day in court without thinking that he has to convict you just so that the city can make ends meet. But in Doraville, when you go into court, and indeed, even when the officer is making the decision to write you a ticket or the prosecutor to prosecute you, all of those decisions are influenced by this financial motive. That creates this financial incentive to convict you. Uh, Doraville's reliance on fines and fees creates a conflict of interest, and that conflict of interest is unconstitutional. Again, government officers have to serve the public. They're not allowed to simply act as gen revenue generators uh, when they're making decisions to convict or to uh, charge you in a criminal court. We're seeing uh, these practices across the country. In fact, most infamously, we saw this in Ferguson, Missouri. Ferguson was uh, this, the scene of a bunch of uh, unrest uh, following the, the Michael Brown shooting. And when the Department of Justice looked into the situation, they discovered that about a quarter of Ferguson's revenue was coming from fines and fees. And that Ferguson's city officials were actually exhorting its police to use enforcement tactics to drive revenue for the city. This was creating a lot of unnecessary confrontation between police and uh, the local citizens. And that sort of taxation by citation is exactly what we see here in uh, Doraville, Georgia. Uh, speed traps and excessive fines don't happen by accident. Doraville has this strong incentive to ticket uh, and convict drivers and residents. And that creates uh, a situation where when drivers enter Doraville, they know that they're going to be subject to this ticketing scheme that is just exists to generate money uh, for the city. The criminal justice system is intended to protect people from harm and punish for wrong. Uh, it's not intended to generate profits. And actually, police groups nationwide have come together to actually oppose using the police as revenue collectors. You know, policemen went to through training and, and serve in order to keep communities safe. They didn't take their jobs to become effectively tax collectors. And... When you look at the expansion of government nationwide, you know, it's easy to see the federal government's expansion is very threatening because we see that in the news every day. But what we miss is the way in which small towns can 
effectively tyrannize their residents like a, a kind of grassroots tyranny using their code enforcement mechanisms. In fact, sometimes that can be far more tyrannical because nobody's looking. And so uh, these local towns can get away with violating due process in a way that sometimes larger government entities uh, can't because people are watching. And that was Joshua House, an attorney with the Institute for Justice. And again, they defend property rights for Americans across this country pro bono. And generally, they're doing it for not just one citizen, but for all of us. And my goodness, what's happening in Doraville, 24% of revenue from citations. That's a disgrace. And all around this country, the price of tickets, the cost of tickets, it's out of control. And in your local town, you might want to go to your mayor and ask him what's going on and how much of the money each year is coming from citations, because this could be coming to a neighborhood near you. And the Institute of Justice, by the way, you can find out more about them at ij.org. Uh, give if you can. They're a terrific organization. Doraville, Georgia's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite regular segments, Life Lessons, from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It's, it sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way, a memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says, that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, On Men and Women. People often uh, wonder, has success changed your life? And yes, it's changed the way I live, I live in a much bigger house than I would, would have lived in, and I have uh, more fast cars, good-looking cars and everything, and a big wardrobe. Nah, I wouldn't say a big wardrobe. I have a lot, of, a lot of clothes, not like my wife. I don't spend a lot of money on clothes, and that's what I'm going to get at. In some ways, it changes your life, money, but in other ways, it doesn't change who you are and how you view things. Although, uh, you know, I'm very comfortable, I still buy used books on Amazon, okay? Why should I pay this price? I don't need new. You know, some things you need new. You're not gonna buy used socks or used underwear, okay? That's for sure, you're gonna buy that new. But when it comes to a book, the fact that somebody read it doesn't, doesn't change it, okay? So my wife still drives, and my kids, why are you buying a used book? It'll come in with some pages bent. Yeah, the words are still there. So, so it's a funny thing about life that I still look for value. I don't want to overpay. Now, that's not true about my wife. <laughs> women, and I'll tell this, there's a funny story about men versus women. And this is a very important matter of fact. 
I think there should be a course in high school, a required course in high school and in college about how men and women are different. And they should have a woman talk about their view of men and their view of women, and then they should have me come in and talk about my view of men and talk about what men are and, what, and how we view women. They're so different. Now, again, I'm not saying that you can't, uh, that a woman can't be a, the chief scientist or can't be a football player. Whatever you want to do, you can do, okay? If, if you can be good at it. But the way that men and women, in general, okay, I'm generalizing, but you know what? Generalizations are generally true. That's the point of a generalization. So generally, men and women are very, very different. Think differently. And it's so important to learn this early on because that's the source of conflict between men and women because they don't get it. Nobody ever told them how different men are than women and how their brains are wired differently and how they think differently. In some ways, better. Men are better in some ways and women are better in some ways. But it's, that doesn't matter. It's all different. And here's a great story about it. Took my wife on a cruise and I was surprised. I actually liked the cruise. But cruises have little boutiques on them, you know, or out to sea and what, you know, the, the cruise company takes advantage. What are you going to do? You've got to spend money. You got, you know, especially the women, they go shopping. Okay. So we went to the jewelry store. It's about three days before the cruise ended and we're, we're walking around. We look go to the jewelry store. And, oh, my wife found a watch. Oh, that's nice. Can I try that on? She tried it on and I saw her a watch. And it was the Casio watch, it turns out. And I, and I tried it. I said, oh, that's a nice watch too, because most of my watches were thin. You see, 20 years ago, thin was in. Thin watches, you know, see how thin you can make a watch. Now, that does take a lot of skill to pack it all like, like an iPhone. Thinner is better. All of a sudden, watches, it got to be a big bend here. You got to be wearing an alarm friggin' clock on your arm for, you know, so, so you can see it. I don't know why, but big is it. So I was looking at a bigger watch, and my wife found this watch. My wife's watch was about $800. And the men's watch was about 600, 800, 600. Okay, we can afford that. I mean, cruise isn't that cheap. Okay, you can afford that. But we said, you know, on any purchase, other than food, I'm gonna say, no, let's think about it. Let's think about it. So two days later, which is one day before the cruise ends, big sign, sale, 50% off. Well, of course, because the customers are leaving. These customers you're never going to see again. And there's no shortage of these watches, okay? They come off an assembly line, and they're still going to make money at 50% off. So better make something from these people, and then we'll put new watches up there in the next group. So now her watch, instead of 800, was 400. And my watch, instead of 600, was 300. Unbelievable. My wife says, a Mao, that's her nickname. Oh, I like this watch, it looks great. I'm happy with my watch. I said, you know what? Let me check on the internet. Let me check on the internet. Her watch, list price on the internet, wasn't 800, wasn't 400, 175. My watch wasn't 600, wasn't 300. It was 250, shipped to your house. Now. That's a story about watches and a story about a cruise. But wait, where's the whole thing is about difference between men and women. How did my wife react? I don't want that watch. 
I don't want that watch. She loved it. Three days ago, she loved it. She tried it on 15 times, loved that watch. But now, it wasn't an $800 watch anymore. It was 170 I don't want that watch, it's crap. That's how a woman reacts. Me, I liked it at 600, I liked it more at 300, and I bought it at 275. <laughs> so guys are happy. They find something they like, it's cheaper, it's better. It's a better deal. Women, they find something they like, oh, it's cheaper? No way. I don't want it! <laughs> Men and women are very, very different. And that's a fantastic story. And I think it applies, you know, just about 90% of the time to men and women. Shopping. Shopping. Guys generally don't like to shop, okay? You know, there are cartoons on the internet. Uh, you just, just go on to Google Images and say men versus women. You'll see these. There's one that uh, I recall. It, it's a bird's eye view of a mall. It's a drawing of a mall. And then it says underneath that, guy shopping for a pair of jeans. It shows a red line from the parking lot to the jeans store and out, right? Under that, woman shopping for a pair of jeans. Red line goes in every store and leaves without the jeans. Buys something else. And that, I think, is another example of men versus women. Men are very goal-oriented. They need something. I need a pair of pliers. I go to Home Depot. I buy the pliers and I leave. A woman needs nylons. She goes to the mall, goes in every friggin' store, buys something, and doesn't come home with a nylon. So, you know, it's, it's a riot, but it's important. And it's important that people understand that difference before they get married. Before they get married. And a lot of times, women, women's way of looking at things is right. When, when we moved to California, we were looking for property. And uh, we had sort of an unlimited budget. And, you know, that makes it harder. When you have a limited budget, there are a limited number of homes to look at, and you've got to pick one. When you have an unlimited budget, it took us a year, okay? So we finally found a home, a very nice house in Rancho Santa Fe. It was $8 million, beautiful home, beautiful home. And I actually signed a P&S on it uh, to buy it. And then we found this home, which is considerably more, more than double. And as an engineer, I put together a spreadsheet and I compared price per foot and operating costs and everything. In the house that we're in now, I said, well, this doesn't make it. It's over, overpriced. Oh, it's, it's overpriced for what you're getting, right? This house, the $8 million, perfectly good. We loved it until, I loved it until my wife found this house and then hard to compare. So I was studying these spreadsheets and I was trying to explain it to my wife on an analytic basis of value and cost projections and whatever. And, you know, she's not a scientist, she's an artist. And uh, she said, well, I don't understand all that, but let me ask you two questions. Can we afford this house, the one that's double? I said, yes. And do you like this house? And I said, of course, who could not like this house? It's a work of art, a work of art. And she said, well, my rule is, if you like it and you can afford it, you buy it which I never thought of that way. You know, I, I thought of, if you like it and can afford it, and it's fair, and this and that, and the maintenance, then you buy it. Too complicated. I decided she was right at this stage in life. Now, at an earlier stage in life, when you're building your career, that's wrong. Just because you can afford it doesn't mean you should buy it, okay? It, 
it should have value to it, all right? You don't want to overpay at that stage. But at this stage of my life, I decided that a woman's perspective was the right way to think about it, and I'm happy we did because it's a fantastic house, and forget the spreadsheets, forget the spreadsheets. So sometimes it's worth overpaying. It's worth overpaying, and it didn't hurt me to overpay because I enjoy it to that degree. And there you go, another life lesson from Dr. Bob. And my wife and I have a similar story. I was Mr. Spreadsheet with a new house, and she just said, can we afford it? And it's like, gulp. Yeah, we can. And Mr. Cheapskate got overruled by a family that was pretty smart, and and we love our house, and I love my house. But if it had been my way, we would have just not done it. Dr. Bob's story, his life lessons. Here are now American stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on the show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And they don't have to be big, change-the-world stories. And they don't have to be from big cities or small towns. They can be from anywhere. And by the way, it's small stories right in your neighborhood that change your world and thus change the world. And we love to tell stories periodically about our little town, Oxford, Mississippi. It's about an hour south of Memphis. It's where we broadcast this show. And this next story is the story of Colonel Bill Hollowell, owner of Foxfire Ranch, a local farm that serves as a music and wedding venue about a half hour north of Oxford. My name is William Hollowell. I go by Bill, and I go by William sometime, too. I'm the owner of Foxfire Ranch. My parents were Albert Hollowell and Wilma Gwen Hollowell, and uh, they were born right here in Marshall County. In fact, uh, this part of the county, not even five or six miles from where we're sitting right now. My father was considerably older than my mother when they were married. He was 15, she was 23, but yet they raised six kids. I was about nine years old when he passed away at the age of 70. After my father passed away, my mother remarried another farmer who lived about 20 miles from here, just west of Holly Springs, in a community called Mariana. And uh, that was a 160-acre farm. And so I ended up growing up uh, partly here on this farm until I was nine, almost 10 years old. Then we moved to another farm with my stepfather. After uh, staying there for about four years, I left home at the age of 14 years old, moved to Cleveland, Ohio, uh, left school in ninth grade, moved to Cleveland, Ohio to live with my older brother after I had an altercation with my stepfather, which led it to a little bit of uh, gunplay, I guess is what you call it. We were all had been working in the garden on a Saturday morning, 
like you, we normally do when you go into school. You know, you work the garden and you do the farm work on the, on Saturdays and go to church on Sunday, of course. But uh, there were three or four dogs on the porch. I guess I had been accumulating these. I told you about we like coon hunting back in those days. So we had these coon hound puppies, and uh, maybe one or two or maybe a year old. But they were hanging around on the porch. And my stepfather says, I'm going to shoot some of these damn dogs if they don't get off my porch. <laughs> I'm going to kill some of them. I'm going to kill all of them. I'm going to shoot some of them or something, he said like that. And I said, well, you just shoot yours. Don't mess with mine, you know. And I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> because, see, that's like disrespectful back then in those days you say something like that and uh, he went in the house and got the shotgun and uh, I started catching the dogs and going around the outside of the house and uh, after I was about halfway around the side of the house he shot in the air over my head so you know I don't know if he was going to shoot me or shoot the dogs or what but uh it was just in close proximity to me. I heard all the bullets, the BBs flying by, you know. I didn't get hit. But uh, that sort of was the way that whole thing went down. And my mom got really upset and she cried a lot and said that I should go and live with my older brother. So I was 14 years old at the time and that's how that all happened. See, when we were growing up, it was a lot of, we loved to eat the raccoon because we, uh, that was in, we used the hide, we'd tack it up on the side of the barn and so forth. And uh, the more hides you got, that was a higher status symbol, you know. <laughs> but no, uh, you know, I've ate it boiled, fried, baked, barbecued. It's pretty good. A lot of people say it's a first cousin to the dog, though. So. <laughs> It's getting close. During the time, though, I lived there in Holly Springs in the 160-acre land there with my stepfather. I learned a lot about farming, about raising cattle, riding horses, and uh, slopping pigs and and uh, slaughtering hogs and all that kind of stuff. I learned a great deal. So I think when you grow up the way I did on a farm most of your early life, all of my early childhood life, you uh, develop a sort of a connection with the farm, with farming and farm things, and that's, that's what brought that connection, brought me back here. One thing my mother insisted is that we attend a private school at the time when we, after we moved from here, and the school was St. Mary's, a Catholic school, ran by Franciscan nuns, wore the habit and everything. I guess they made a good, uh, big impact on my life. Uh, uh, because the education was probably the best that you could get around here at this time. Went to live with my older brother. He was maybe 21, 22 at the time. He was nine years older than I am. I guess for one night he's about 23. And I started high school in Ohio. I ended up not adjusting very well to the high school there in the city and uh, ended up joining the Marine Corps, you know. So I had buddies that were doing the same thing. Vietnam, this was back around 67, 68. Vietnam was uh, really hot during that time. They were sending, you know, they were still drafting people. And uh, my brother was drafted. 
I get letters from him about life in the Army and so forth. He didn't immediately go to Vietnam. He was at Fort Hood. But then uh, a few of my friends joined the Navy, and uh, so I decided to go down to the recruiting station one day. Uh, I left school early that morning because I didn't want to be in school, didn't want to go to class, and uh, walked in, and there are these two Marines standing there, and they said, where are you going? I said, well, going down the hallway to join the Navy. Navy recruiter said, you ought to join the Marine Corps. The Marines baddest. They're the baddest. That's my, my level of thinking was that, you know, I guess he was shooting at that. But anyway, I ended up joining the Marine Corps and uh, shipped out to Paris Island, South Carolina, on the 2nd of November, 1969. And you're listening to Colonel Bill Hollowell. And what a voice and what a story so far when we come back more of his story a story from small town southern america here on our american stories Turn to our American stories and to Colonel Bill Hollowell's story. And let's pick up where we last left off the Vietnam War and the Marine Corps. Well, you know, when I first got there, uh, I had a big afro. <laughs> and uh, I heard this drill instructor over there pointing. He said, Look at that. <laughs> and I said, What? And uh, I'm thinking. You know, I didn't have, that was probably the first time I've ever been called a And so they sent me straight to the barber chair and he just ripped my fro off, you know. Basic training, I didn't have any problem in basic training, you know. See, I uh, was quite young, I was 17 and I went to Vietnam at 18 and I'd gotten back about 19. Tough experience, but I learned a lot. I made a lot of good friends. I learned to live with people, not my same uh, race. I learned how to get close to people that were uh, from different parts of the United States. Uh, it taught me a lot about fellow human beings, I guess, and uh, you get close to these people, even some of the South Vietnamese people that we met and then along the way and interacted with the kids and so forth. You know, you uh, you get, it's a different experience, and that was probably one of the richest experiences is that uh, you know, you learn how to be unselfish, I guess. Uh, you learn how to do things for other people because your your life depends on it and his, uh, his life depends on it. So you get very close to people, and, uh, and that is a, a valuable thing in terms of a life lesson, I think. You know, for me it's been valuable because uh, it makes me realize that... Uh, you know, we are all uh, connected somehow. I had gotten conditioned in the Marine Corps and everything, and uh, I didn't have a problem living in the barracks or at Camp Pendleton or anything like that. And I think I was fairly disciplined because I'd been to Vietnam. I was uh, 100% Marine then, and uh, I had, uh, you know, the Marine Corps meant everything to me and the people in the Marine Corps. and. Uh, I was thinking about re-enlisting, but uh, I didn't. I ended up getting out 
and going back to school, went to Ole Miss, went to college. And uh, as a matter of fact, I got into law enforcement. Uh, that's sort of my start in law enforcement. Before I left the Marine Corps, I went by the police department in Holly Springs, and I told the chief, you know, uh, I said, I'm getting out of the Marine Corps. I was looking for a job. And he said, well, when you getting out, I told him in November. He said, well, when you leave the, when you get out, come see me. And uh, this was now 1973. And uh, they had one black police officer in the whole city, on the whole department. So people started telling me, man, they're not going to hire you on that department and all that kind of stuff. And they told me how the, the department was messed up, it was racist and all this kind of thing. When I got out, I didn't go back by the department. But then they came looking for me the day, next day or two. I've been out two or three days. So I guess the chief wrote it down that I was getting out and everything. Went by the police department and the chief, assistant chief, talked to me and everything. And I was on the department that same evening. And next day they took me to the uniform store, had me fitted for uniforms. It was only a 12-man department. And I was H-12, Holly Springs 12, and I was 12 full-time police officers. But anyway, I ended up getting on that department. I stayed there seven years, and I did, completed my degree uh, in uh, law enforcement at Ole Miss during that time. We only had a couple, I think it was one or two murders while I was on the police department that I went to and had to witness. It was a different experience because I was 21 years old, and I tried not to make mistakes, but you... I remember going to work and counting the mistakes I made in one day, you know. You learn a, you earn a certain respect for people uh, on the street, being a little policeman in a small town even. You learn a lot about people and a lot about uh, attitudes and so forth. So I experienced the gamut of attitudes and people's, uh, their opinions from people and so forth. You know, the big opinion was they would say things like, uh, you can't re- arrest white people. You know, that's what a lot of black folks would tell me back in that day. You got that badge on and you ain't nothing and you can't even arrest white folks and all this kind of stuff, which wasn't the truth, you know. The chief was a really a good individual. Uh, you know, he taught me a lot about law enforcement and a lot about uh, trying to de-escalate situations when you walk into a domestic violence situation. He taught me a lot about, you know, public says a lot of things about police officers. Sometimes it's not true. Sometimes it is, I guess. Of course it is in some cases. But uh, I decided that a career in the Army, a uh, military career, would be a little bit more lucrative than uh, enjoyable than a police career. I ended up getting a commission as a lieutenant in the United States Army. I switched over from Marine Corps to Army, and I got commissioned on the day I graduated I served in Europe, uh, California, Georgia, Panama, Cuba. So I went a lot of places, did a lot of things. And 24 years went by pretty fast. I guess Bill was about uh, nine years old when he moved into uh, the community that I was living in. We lived right across the road from each other. I met my wife at about the age of eight or nine. Nine, I think I was nine, nine years old. Yeah, we've been friends close to ever since. We've been married 48 years, but uh, we ended up getting married. I was 20, I think, just getting ready to get out of the Marine Corps, and she was uh, 19. Her mother had signed for her to get married. 
But, well, you know, back then it was different. People got married a lot younger. He came home one leave and uh, saw this beautiful young girl running down the road, <laughs> uh, jumping across the hill and all this good stuff. And so he decided, that's going to be my wife, okay? Oh, <laughs> that's the woman I want in my life, okay? And we kind of formed a relationship and went from that. But she didn't tell you that they were sharecropping. Well, you, you don't have to know everything, Hollowell. <laughs> we were sharecroppers. And, and we, were, we owned our own farm, so mm-hmm. we were a higher status. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So he thought, okay. But anyway, uh, for some reason, he wanted that low-class girl, so he got me, okay? <laughs> we actually bought this farm in 1994 <clears throat> while we were still in the military. And... Uh, we started thinking about retiring in 2000, you know, when you're in the military, you always think about life after, you know, that's not, you got to do something else one day. And uh, so we decided that we were going to come back here instead of, you know, you see all these cool places to live in California, Georgia, Northern Virginia. You see beautiful places in the United States that you know you'd like to live at, but we just chose to come back to Mississippi because uh, this was home and... This was a farm we started out on. It had a lot of memories. And so we started building that house in 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we built a cabin in 2000, built a house in 2002. Yeah, yeah, built a cabin. We had cattle here first. We had cows all walking around all over. This was a cow pasture. And so uh, we first built this thing, and we decided that uh, my daughter was in law school at Ole Miss, and she brought a bunch of kids out here, and they had a party. And that's how it sort of got started, this whole uh, events with Ole Miss Law School. And then we started doing other events, family reunions and so forth. And we just added, kept adding to this uh, place as we go. But uh, I wanted to do something a little bit recreational and uh, do something that was uh, related to music. Uh, <clears throat> and I'd heard about places like this out west, North Carolina, Tennessee, even, where you've got a farm that does recreational stuff like reunions, parties, and so forth. Because people like coming out on a farm. They like seeing farm equipment. Uh, A lot of people got farm roots in their families from grandparents. We started doing events out here, and it sort of took off from that. We we basically still have the same menu, okay? We started out with barbecue pulled pork, uh, and then we have fried chicken and... uh, uh, barbecue chicken, and we have baked beans and coleslaw, catfish, turnip greens, cabbage, uh, black-eyed peas, potato pies, uh, potato salad, salad, you name it. We would try to put it on the peach menu. Cobbler. Peach cobbler for dessert and sometimes sweet potato pie and, you know, and chocolate cake and ice cream, just a bunch of things. If I feel like cooking lasagna on a Sunday, we'll do that, or dressing, we'll do that. So it all depends on the time of the year and what I feel like cooking. We call it, we're shaking and we're baking, okay? You know, the music's playing, we're shaking, and the food is baking. So the food is pretty good. People keep asking for more, and we just go ahead and just do what we have to do. Yeah, we enjoy it. We enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I think we enjoy serving people, having people come out here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it's been good. Yeah. And, uh, we the more the merry, you know. Keep it going, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And let's hope they'll be shaking and baking a long time. Colonel Bill Hollowell, his bride, his wife, Annie. Their story's here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories. And this next story comes to us from a regular contributor, John Elfner, who's taught U.S. history for over 20 years at Homewood Flossmoor High School in the south suburbs of Chicago. Here's John with a great history story. I teach U.S. history to high school students, and on the first day of class, just after they've arrived, I tell them the story of something called the Freedom Train. It's the very first thing my students hear me talk about, and it's such a great story, it comes with its own soundtrack. Speaking of trains, I think it'd be a good idea for the Rhythm Airs and Mr. Trotter to join me in a song about the most important choo-choo, the Freedom Train. This song by Bing Crosby was written to celebrate a very specific train that over 3.5 million Americans boarded between 1947 and 1949. It was called the Freedom Train. The Freedom Train was a museum on rails. It was an actual train. Each car contained original documents that represented American freedom, and the train traveled from city to city for over two years. It would pull into a station and settle on a sidetrack. The local townspeople would board the train to witness freedom documents. Original copies of the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Emancipation Proclamation, along with many others, were featured. Dr. Stuart J. Little has written extensively about the Freedom Train, and I'm going to let him pick up the story. The Freedom Train was a social, cultural, political event immediately on the heels of the end of the Second World War. And it began as an idea for some staff people who worked for the Department of Justice And they just so happened to be across the street from the National Archives. And they walked across the street one day, I think on their lunch hour, they got together with the Attorney General's office, with the National Archives people and said, let's see what we can do to put something together. So by the early 1947, they created this organization called the American Heritage Foundation. And they designed a very aggressive schedule to bring this train to all parts of the country. They started in September of 1947, went around the country for 413 days, went to 322 cities, and by their count, they had over 3 million people that visited the train every time it stopped, and that averaged out to, I think, about 9,000 people a day. The Freedom Train had a mission to bolster American identity. Now remember, we were barely out of World War II, and the nation had been so unified with a purpose that was literally life and death during that war. And now the war was over we were entering our next great conflict, the Cold War, and the organizers of the Freedom Train recognized the need to encourage a very specific idea of what it means to be an American outside of wartime. And their organizing principle was freedom. Here again is Dr. Little. We've defeated the Nazis and the Japanese. There's a great consensus in America for what we mean, and we can pull these documents together and reflect that, that we're on the the right path. We've defeated everybody. We're literally at the rise of American power after World War II. And so there's this great sense of accomplishment and moving forward. Townspeople excitedly rushed in droves to see the Freedom Train. But you don't have to take my word for it. I met two women who boarded the Freedom Train in 1947. I would have been 12 or 13. That's Clarice Fleet, and she boarded the train in Minot, North Dakota. I was in grade school at that time. And that's Carol Jones. She got on the train in Green Bay, Wisconsin in 1948. And it was announced all over the media. From coast to coast, the Freedom Train thrilled millions of Americans with its message of liberty. Among the documents of greatest interest, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, our Bill of Rights. 
and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, the Freedom Train, bearing these guarantees of liberty, symbolize the forwards of America. The arrival of the Freedom Train, especially in small towns like Minot, North Dakota and Green Bay, Wisconsin, thrilled the people from these towns. You can hear it in Carol Jones's voice as she talks about learning the Freedom Train was coming. We were very excited to know that the Freedom Train was coming to Green Bay. Our school was going to march in, in line and get dressed up and we were going to go see the Freedom Train. We were thoroughly excited that this train was coming to Green Bay. It was fascinating listening to these two women tell the story of their visits to the Freedom Train. To this day, Carol and Clarice have never met or spoken to each other. Both women's recollections of their visit was nearly identical. Welcome to the Freedom Train. We got our friends together and we all marched over. The whole town turned out just like they did for the state fair. We gathered at school, St. Patrick's grade school. No pushing. So the nuns all had their habits on and everything and they escorted us in line. Step this way. The line that went forever. <laughs> And the train itself was in red, white, and blue. It was a beautiful day. I mean, it was just lovely. And we had we walked through, and it was, keep going, keep going. Move faster, please. <laughs> we couldn't daddle. And on each side, and then you walked down, down the middle of the aisle of the train. They divided us up because the train was so long. Stay with your group. And then on each side, they had the documents set. They were the real documents. The Constitution is on your left. It was so exciting to see the Declaration of Independence. They showed documents under, under glass. glass. Don't touch the glass. You couldn't touch them, but you could look at them. And it went on all day. Open from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. This beautiful train. Very, very beautiful. As passengers boarded the train, they were handed something called the Freedom Pledge. It was created by the American Heritage Organization, and by reading it, you can tell what they meant by freedom. I will vote at all elections. I will serve on a jury when asked. I will respect and obey the laws. I will pay my taxes understandingly, if not cheerfully. I will work for peace. Getting on the train and accepting the card with the Freedom Pledge was a version of entering into a contract with the designers of the Freedom Train, committing to their notion of what it means to be an American. Every person who boarded the train was even asked to sign a scroll, which was delivered to the National Archives when the train concluded its journey in 1949. The contract sent this message, our country provided freedom, and the passenger's obligation in the contract was to fulfill this pledge. And this pledge succeeded in setting a tone for the interior of the train. Newspapers reported it this way. Inside, one has the feeling he is in church. The only light is the soft fluorescent glow reflected from the lighted documents. Parents shush their children and little schoolboys take off their caps without being told. People speak in low guarded tones used by tourists in ancient cathedrals. The Freedom Train had a mission to define through documents what it means to be an American and to get millions of people to sign on to that definition. Touring these documents from city to city, people like Clarice and Carol understood what the American Heritage Foundation had hoped that they would. Our nation is successful because of a past focused on freedom, designed by our noble ancestors, who through their work created a strong and united nation. And that unity and strength of principle allowed us to defeat tyranny in World War II. The country was unified and the Freedom Train emphasized that unity. Everybody 
was so appreciative to be able to see those things because to have it come to our, our little hometown meant so much to everybody at that time. I don't know anybody in town that didn't go down there. All we knew is that something exciting was coming to town and that we were going to see the Freedom Train, the real Freedom Train, with real things that were all about Washington and Lincoln. We would have to see for real just the fact that you were looking at the actual documents that formulated our country. Everybody was God bless America and there was no controversy and we were coming out of the war and there was a lot of patriotism going on. We had yet to face what was happening as far as integration goes. That may have been true in Green Bay, Wisconsin, but as the train scheduled stops in the south, city officials in Birmingham, Alabama, announced that in their city, the Freedom Train would be segregated. And if I didn't have my students' attention up until this point, I have their attention now. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story, the Freedom Train. And by the way, what an idea to take a Freedom Pledge. I don't know if you've ever been to a a swearing-in ceremony for immigrants in this country who come here. But it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever heard. And I sometimes wonder if we all shouldn't have to do that as a pathway to voting and everything else. And by the way, look that pledge up. Just go up on uh, Google and, and type in Citizen Pledge. Maybe I'll read it at the end of the rest of this story. When we come back to Freedom Train, we're with John Elfner, a history teacher at Homewood Flossmore High School in the south suburbs of Chicago. More on this story here on Our American Stories. Return to our American stories and the story of the Freedom Train. Let's return to John Elfner for the rest of this story. The Freedom Train was a glorious success, hosting 9,000 visitors a day, traveling over 30,000 miles in two years, and having over 3 million witnesses to our founding documents. But when the train headed for Birmingham in 1947, the town announced it would segregate African American and white visitors to the train. How can something called the Freedom Train end up with such obvious contradictions to the basic notions of freedom? It's important to remember that the year the Freedom Train began in 1947, it was still seven years before the landmark Supreme Court case, Brown v. Board of Education, which declared segregation by race inherently unequal. But the Freedom Train organizers were ready for this. Here again is historian Stuart J. Little. The American Heritage Foundation, they had a stated written policy that they would not allow segregated viewing of these documents when the train went through the South. A portion of the Freedom Pledge even acknowledged this. In thought, expression, and action, I will avoid any group prejudice based on class, race, or religion. Despite the efforts of the Freedom Train organizers, many Southern cities still tried to schedule segregated viewings of the train. At this point in the story, we meet a familiar opponent of civil rights who became much more prominent after the 1963 Birmingham movement. His name is Bull Connor, and he held the position of the Commissioner of Public Safety and was the head of the police in Birmingham, Alabama. 
Remember the images of the German shepherds attacking African-American teens? Or the Birmingham Fire Department using fire hoses to break up protesters? They were acting on the orders of Bull Connor. But the Freedom Train was visiting Birmingham 16 years before that famous march. Connor's views on segregation in the Freedom Train won't surprise you. He sent a message to the organizers of the Freedom Train saying this. Our segregation law is for the equal protection of the white and black races of the city and for the prevention of disorder in the city. We will fairly give equal opportunity to whites and blacks to enter the Freedom Train by alternatively allowing whites and blacks in each car of the train. Can you hear how Connor is using the language of the separate but equal ruling of the Supreme Court? We will fairly give equal opportunity to whites and blacks. What he meant was, African Americans can board the train at separate times than whites would be boarding the train. The attempts to segregate the Freedom Train at stops like Birmingham, Alabama didn't go unnoticed by civil rights advocates. Langston Hughes, perhaps the most celebrated poet of the Harlem Renaissance, wrote a poem called The Freedom Train and it was recorded by arguably the most famous and most political African-American figure in the 1940s, Paul Robeson. Checking on the Freedom Train. I read in the papers about the Freedom Train. I heard on the radio about the Freedom Train. Atlanta, way across Jordan. Lord, Lord, Lord. Lord, way down in Dixie, the only trains I see Got Jim Crow coaches set aside for me. I hope there's no Jim Crow. Researching this story, I found a ripped piece of paper in the Library of Congress's papers belonging to Rosa Parks. It was a scrap of typing paper that had faded to a parchment yellow. It was torn, and only fragments of sentences were visible. The Library of Congress had cataloged it as Rosa Parks writing about the Freedom Train. But it wasn't that. It was Langston Hughes's poem. Mrs. Parks had heard it and typed it out for herself. But there's more. Mrs. Parks was aware that other cities like Birmingham had tried to segregate the lines for the Freedom Train. She decided that she would, in the words of Langston Hughes, check up on the Freedom Train when it arrived in Montgomery. Historian Dr. Jean Theo Harris is the author of a recent award-winning biography of Mrs. Parks called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. She picks up the story. The Freedom Train is supposed to be integrated and they're galled that the committee in Montgomery, it's an all-white committee, and she writes up a report from the Montgomery NAACP basically calling attention to this, and it's published in the Memphis World, which is a black newspaper. Parks, who was at that time already working for the NAACP, saw the Freedom Train as an opportunity to advocate for civil rights. In December of 1947, she ultimately takes a group of black young people to see the Freedom Train and it's, it's dangerous. It's her first experience with kind of hate calls. The popular image of Rosa Parks is that of a seamstress who didn't want to give up her seat on the bus because she was simply tired. But the story of Rosa Parks is much more complex and layered, and she may have been directly inspired by the Langston Hughes poem. Listen to these lines. The Birmingham stations marked colored and white. White folks left the colored right. They even got a segregated lane. Is that the way to get aboard the Freedom Train? I'm going to check. I'm going to check up on this Freedom Train. Rosa Parks was checking up on the Freedom Train, just as Langston Hughes said you should. The train she boarded was not technically segregated, but it wasn't clear when she arrived that the community in Montgomery would allow her to integrate the train, or even the line for the train. 
When Rosa Parks checked up on the Freedom Train, it was still eight years before she would become a national figure when she refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus. So how did they do? Was the movement surrounding the Freedom Train a success? I'll let you decide. Here's what happened. When word reached organizers of the Freedom Train that southern cities were considering segregating the train, they sent advance men to all the cities to check up on any efforts to segregate the lines to the Freedom Train. Any cities that had such plans were told the Freedom Train would cancel its visits. Only Birmingham and Memphis, Tennessee continued to insist on segregated lines, and in those cities, the Freedom Train stops were canceled. The decision to stand up to the city organizers in Birmingham and Memphis was cheered nationally. The New York Times made the cancellation of the Birmingham stop a front-page story on Christmas Day of 1947. After the cancellations in Birmingham and Memphis, Walter White, the leader of the NAACP, publicly said this, For one of the very first times in history, the rest of the country had called the bluff of the reactionary South. I began this story by saying that on the first day of my history class, I tell my students the story of the Freedom Train. Why this story? I'm going to let Dr. Kevin Boyle, Northwestern University history professor and author of my favorite history book, Arc of Justice, help answer that question. Most Americans know the story of the Civil Rights Movement. Or maybe a better way of putting it is they know a story of the Civil Rights Movement. Ask them when the Civil Rights Movement began, and they'll tell you it started on a Thursday night, a little after 5 p.m., on December 1st, 1955, when a woman, a 42-year-old woman, they think was elderly, refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. From that single act of defiance by Rosa Parks, they'll say, emerged a movement that swept across the South of the 1950s and 1960s ran through the hallways of Little Rock Central High School in 1957. It sat down at the lunch counters in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960. Rode the buses out of Anniston, Alabama in 1961. It came onto the campus of the University of Mississippi in 1962. It filled the streets of Birmingham with children in the spring of 1963. It dared to go into the Mississippi Delta in the summer of 64. It marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge outside of Selma, Alabama in 1965, and it died on a motel balcony in Memphis, Tennessee in April of 1968. That's the story of civil rights as most Americans understand it. So what happens when you look at the African-American struggle that doesn't fit into that story, that doesn't fit between 1955 and 1965, when it doesn't fit into that triumphant trajectory, what happens to civil rights then? What happens is a reconsideration of the story of the civil rights movement, a story we thought we knew. And when you widen the civil rights movement beyond the years of the traditional story, my students realize that Rosa Parks and scores of others like her were fighting for civil rights long before the Montgomery bus boycott. And when they realize that a story they thought they knew is more complex and requires more exploration, it forces them to dig more deeply into all eras of history. It also gives them a chance to consider what artifacts from each era could be used to represent what it means to be an American. There was a second freedom train that traveled through our country to celebrate America's bicentennial in 1976. 
It featured many of the same documents from the original Freedom Train, but it also included dozens of documents that didn't exist at the time of the first Freedom Train, like a moon rock gathered by astronauts during the Apollo mission, John F. Kennedy's rocking chair from the White House, Hank Aaron's baseball cap, and dozens of other more recent artifacts. Seeing the difference between the two trains makes me wonder what would a Freedom Train have looked like in 1830, 1865, 1920, or today? In the year 2026, our country will be celebrating the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I can't think of a better way to celebrate our Sester Centennial than for us to get on board a third Freedom Train. And what stories, speeches, people, portraits, and songs would you want to see on that Freedom Train to represent what it means to be an American? I hope somebody plans a Freedom Train, and if they do, let's get on board together. I guarantee you the lines will be long, but there'll be plenty of room for all of us on the 21st Century Freedom Train. All aboard! The Freedom Train And you've been listening to John Elfner and the story of the Freedom Train and that second installment, particularly compelling, telling the story of segregation in America and giving the larger picture. We did a terrific piece on Rosa Parks and her life story, and it's clear that that was not the beginning of her trial, that for a long time before, Rosa Parks had been on the move trying to change things in the South, and heck, there was a heck of a lot of segregation in the North, too. I'm a Jersey boy uh, by, by birth, and my goodness, almost all the neighborhoods were filled with white folks, and when black folks moved in, white folks left. There wasn't a law forcing them to, but they did it anyway. And we cover all the stories here on Our American Stories, the good ones, the bad ones, and everything in between. The Freedom Train, here's hoping we get one for 2026. I'd love to see what's on it. That story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.